Hello, and welcome to When in Doubt Pixie. I'm one of your hosts, Lindsay Jones. And I'm Sophie Lee, the other host. So here on this podcast, we answer a different question every two weeks and talk about four different answer choices. And at the end, we give you our verdict. So what is the question of the week this week, Sophie? The question is, which horseman of the apocalypse is the worst? (laughs) Just the worst. Yep. I mean, so why are we asking this uh, after, during this holiday season, why are we asking about the apocalypse? Well, first of all, this holiday season is happening in the year of our Lord, 2019, Mm -hmm. which uh, for those of you who are alive in the year of our Lord, 2019, you're probably just like, that's enough. Yeah. At this rate, like an apocalyptic event is, is due, right? Yes. It would almost be a relief at this point. These days, the news can often make it feel as though it is the apocalypse all day, every day, Mm -hmm. because of all the headlines. There's a lot of negative news, which, to be fair, all of it is true. Right. But that doesn't mean that it's uplifting. No. And one could say there's probably too much focus on all of that very true negative news. Yeah, exactly. But also, in today's day and age, a lot of that negative news is very negative and extremely consequential, right? We are living in a time with a lot of political and economic turmoil. We are living in a time where climate change is a thing. In general, the joke about people of our generation, Lindsay and I are both millennials, is that we're kind of dead inside, you know? We are we think about a lot of things that to our elders seem very nihilistic and um hopeless right and we laugh yeah (laughs) in the face of god or the lack thereof yeah exactly how does it go i will face god and walk backwards into hell well we are walking backwards into hell right now right and speaking of hell We're not just talking about any old apocalypse for this episode. We're specifically talking about the four horsemen of the apocalypse, best known for their appearance in the book of Revelation. Right. Lindsay, would you like to read uh, the passage where they're mentioned? Sure. For all you readers at home, this is from the book of Revelation, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Right. And we're using the King James Version for the curious because hashtag King James for life. Yes. All right, go for it. And God spake. Just kidding. He didn't. Uh, So, and I saw when the lamb opened one of the seats and I heard as if it were the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, come and see. And I saw and behold a white horse and he that sat on him had a bow and a crown was given unto him and he went forth conquering and to conquer. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, come and see. And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see. And I beheld, and lo, a black horse. And he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny. And see, thou heard not the oil and the wine. And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was Death, and hell followed with him. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth, 
to kill with sword and with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. <sighs> so that's like fine. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. It's perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so three of these horsemen, which are going to comprise three of our answer choices, are normally pretty agreed upon, right? Right. So we have the second horse, which is war. Mm-hmm. And then we have the third horse, which is famine. Right. And then the fourth horse, or the fourth horseman, I should say, is death. Right. Right. So then we kind of, it's a little bit more fuzzy with the first one. Um, some people call the first horseman conquest. Sure. Seems like that's from the King James. Right. And um, other people interpret this particular horse as plague or pestilence. Right, which is, I think, the one that's probably more common in pop culture. Right, so that's really common in pop culture. Um, I personally agree with that interpretation, not necessarily because of what's in the text, but because it gives a little bit more variety. Yeah, because conquest and war, right? Exactly. So they seem pretty um, related. And also, I think if you do interpret it as pestilence, the text doesn't not say that it's pestilence, you know? Yeah. Um, He had a bow and a crown, and he went forth conquering, and so kind of in the way that illness also has the power to conquer. Sure. um, Or to strike people, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Like lovesickness and then the image of a bow, that kind of thing, too. Exactly. Exactly. So that's the way that we've chosen to interpret the first horseman, and so which gives us our four answer choices for this week, Mm -hmm. which is going to be A, pestilence, B, war, C, famine, and D, death. Right. (laughs) Nothing too heavy about all that. Nope. Happy, happy new year. Happy new year. So yeah, we're going to be thinking about these four horsemen and how bad they would be, you know, in in a modern context. So what's going on now? How bad would that be? For us, humanity, as we are now in at the end of 2019, and also, what would be the chances of survival for the Earth generally? Not because we're trying not to be too anthropocentric. Yeah, exactly. Hashtag not all not all organisms. Right. So, with all that in mind, let's begin with a pestilence. All right, pestilence. This one is super fascinating and also makes my skin crawl. <laughs> But so we want to start each answer choice, as Lindsay said, with evaluating how likely is this a thing? How likely is this to end the world, right? right. In our times, in the year of our Lord, 2019. Right. So, Lindsay, uh, how likely would you figure that pestilence is? I mean, so not to throw out any statistics, but just to to point out some things that have been lately in the news that pro- would fall under this category I want to begin with literally anti-vaxxers. Oh, God. Which I can't believe, again, in the year of our Lord 2019, that, you know, there are cases of whooping cough and measles and et cetera, you know? Polio's back. And polio. We thought we had killed polio. Polio is back. Next thing you know, it's... I was reading some papers that said that, you know, it's not impossible for smallpox to come back. So it's like you can't get complacent. Yeah, because if we if we stop vaxing for it, yeah, like not great. So that's that's fun. That's a great note to start on. That was a thing that was interesting to me, which is that there have been a lot of measles cases in OECD countries. Mm. So because of the anti-vaxxer movement, that they've recorded a significant number of 
measles cases, thankfully we haven't got polio back in the OECD quite yet, but this is not a problem that we can export. This is not something that we can, that we say, oh, it happens to other people. It is happening here Yeah, in our, you know, comfortable existence. For sure. Wake up, sheeple. Wake up, sheeple. For sure. Right. That's not even to get into all of the kind of diseases that we don't have vaccinations for, that we don't have community or individual immunity against. Right. We're thinking like superbugs that humanity is creating with an over-reliance on antibiotics. Right. And the weird antibiotics that we pump into our livestock, which can help the bugs pump up there, and then they transfer... You know, earlier this year, uh, the president of the United States rolled back a bunch of regulations on the pork industry. So, you know, that's not great as far as restricting foodborne illnesses. Right. Another thing that I thought was interesting that I had just forgotten about, but Mm -hmm. I got chills when I read about it, is the fact that a lot of those diseases that we go, oh, back in the old days, they had those, right? Right. So again, we've got polio, smallpox, even bubonic plague, Spanish flu, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. A lot of these diseases are still existent in that they exist in samples, right? That people keep in labs. Yeah. So if you think about it, if those samples fall into the wrong hands, then you have a super powerful weapon that somebody could use. Right. And, you know, again, given the way the world is going. Right. Who's to say that that, you know, is not going to be the next step? We're already breaking tons of, you know, Geneva Convention stuff across the world. Exactly. So it's in a world that is as politically tumultuous as the one that we live in currently, you can't rule out biological warfare. Mm -hmm. You can't rule out these samples of diseases possibly being used with malicious intent. Mm -hmm. So that's a fun thought. Isn't it? Yeah. It's real great. Another thing to be worried about under this category of pestilence is the kind of obvious, again, not to be human-centric, Diseases also happen in other species and other species besides animals. So you have things like banana plague that wipe out all of the agricultural bananas, right? Right. So if that were to happen, and, you know, I've I've been hearing rumblings of another banana plague, so who knows? Yeah. It is very possible that some kind of plague like that could wipe out a huge part of the food chain that the modern world uses to survive. Right, especially because... um, a really common agricultural practice of the quote-unquote modern world is monoculture. Yep, the stupidest way to grow food. It's so idiotic, but it is really, really common practice, especially in the quote-unquote developed world. Mm -hmm. Especially in the West. Right, so then you have things like citrus greening disease, which um, sort of sours citrus trees over time, Mm -hmm. so slowly destroying the value of their crops. You have this disease that I thought was really creepy. It's called olive tree leprosy. Ooh. So it destroys olive trees really rapidly, um, and they have so far not found a cure. So the only solution is to destroy the infected tree and then destroy all of the trees around it Uh, to try and quarantine. Yeah, that's like a zombie disease. Yeah. So speaking of zombies, uh, (laughs) let's talk about how bad this would be, which is, for me, I feel like the pestilence, the horseman of pestilence is really well explored through every zombie movie that you've ever seen. Right. In that, it's, uh, if the world were to end just via pestilence, it would be super terrible. Yeah. Because it's a relatively slow way to go, right? Yes. Normally, 
pestilence, it doesn't kill everybody at once. Normally you have to watch people that you know and love succumb to the disease, kind of become shades of their former self. Yeah, not to mention because if it is a slower disease, slow enough to spread to everybody, of course, that gives you plenty of time for class stratification, a la the bubonic plague, where the peasants died in the streets and the rich people all took vacations to Italy. Yeah, uh, read um, The Mask of the Red Death. It's great. Yes, uh, Mask Very of the Red Death, or but also like Elysium. Is that not the plot of Elysium? I do not remember, but that's that sounds legit. Where you know the rich people make their own little stratified place, stratified place to live because they want to escape the diseases of the poors. Right, and even then, it's not foolproof because you have to have, you know, there's still going to be people going up and down. And, oh yeah, and, and, sorry, in and out, and so it's it's just a way to make life absolutely miserable for everybody involved. Yeah. Um, one thing that I was going to bring up is that uh, you've seen in a lot of areas where there is disease and you again, looking at the bubonic plague outbreak in the 1300s, mm-hmm. a lot of times pestilence causes major breakdowns in societies and institutions. Uh huh. For sure. Also, if you've ever watched The Walking Dead, that's literally in the first episode. Mm-hmm. Um, so, which is a big thing because once there are cracks in the societies and institutions, then everything, at least as far as humans are concerned, comes crashing down because you basically re- we basically revert to our kind of primal tribalism. Yeah, exactly. It's really, really difficult to do kind of the large collective efforts that we are capable of doing today because we have institutions that can plan for the long term and do that yeah kind of stuff. and work together and worry about more than short-term survival right exactly so that's human society what do you what about non-human society because we just talked about this right I, yeah i think obviously if it's some kind of food plague or plant plague or whatever crop plague Obviously, that's not great, but there's just so much, so much biodiversity on Earth that I feel like if there was some, if there was a plague that was wiping out humans, nature would be all right. Even if there was a plague that was wiping out like rice or something, all of the grains of rice that humans eat, I think there's enough biodiversity that the Earth could definitely pull through. Yeah, there would definitely be an impact. Yeah, especially because a lot of human illnesses already they come from animals. You know, a lot of flu viruses originate in waterfowl, or they come from swine disease reservoirs, genetic pools, and yeah. stuff like that. So normally, it's like if the humans are getting it, probably some animal population has already got it. Of course, I think another big thing to worry about in mm-hmm. a more indirect way is in the advent of a breakdown of human society, just all of the pollution. That would leak into the everywhere because of the sudden shutdown. Obviously, we have human pollution given our waste, but like you know, if if if, if the um the pilot of a plane zombifies and crashes the plane into the side of a mountain, that's devastated that ecosystem, hasn't it? Yes. If the shampoo um, factory explodes, it poisons the water for all the animals. You know that that's very that, that true. gets into. There's different artistic representations and theorizations on how this would work out you know you have shows that are closer to revolution which was this really short-lived tv show wherein all the lights went out so people died and there there was a terrible short-term effect but then over time because 
people weren't using as much power, they weren't burning as much fuel, then the environment sort of bounced back. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's different theories and uh, well i shouldn't say theories because this is a more science episode there's different hypotheses about how it would turn out Mm -hmm. if we lost a big amount of our population due to disease so you know but for us measly humans it would suck and that's (laughs) that on that i'd like to wrap up this category by reflecting on the ways in which pestilence has been fought back against by humans you know, okay. recently. Yeah. Any good news that you might know about illnesses that we're fighting? For me, I think the existence of vaccinations is great. Yes. There's more people that vaccinate than people who are anti-vaxxers. Yes. They're working on Thank curing God. HIV. Uh-huh. Not just treating it because as it is, there's a very manageable treatment that makes it basically makes you have no symptoms, which is great. And yep. they're working on a cure so that you won't even be able to transmit it to others. Yep. Which I think is lovely. Yeah. So... To bring it back to something that we said earlier, I think, especially with the fighting of pestilence, it is really, really important to have institutions. Yeah. Because with institutions, then you can implement things like mass vaccinations. You can bring together and educate the best minds in order to find a cure or a treatment or whatever. Or even just Um, spread education about germ theory and the importance of washing your hands. Yeah, exactly. You can do preventative measures. Um, it is much, much easier to do that when you have institutions that are broad spanning and can reach a lot of human society. Yeah, which we do. Yeah. So it's really good that we have that now. Mm-hmm. And I really, really hope that the institutions that we do have will uh, keep going for a very, very long time, please. Yes. The institutions that, uh, that are helping prevent massive disease outbreaks. Looking at you, CDC. Thank you. Thank you, CDC, for your service. Indeed. All right. Shall we move on? Yes. Let's look at option B, war. Right. So how likely is it that the world will end in war? Well, obviously, ever since the 1940s, we've all been terrified of the specter of nuclear winter. (sighs) It's like we were, I thought we were over this. Yeah, because North Korea also has nuclear warheads. It like, we have one and we have a president, you know, it's... (laughs) We don't always have the kind of presidents that we would want to have access to nuclear codes. Yeah. Mm. So basically, and as of the recording of this episode, um, the U.S. and North Korea are currently not talking to each other. They are currently not on friendly terms, as might have been hoped from events transpiring earlier in the year. So that doesn't bode well. No. So uh, it's it's not unlikely, you know. Yeah. And also, I wanted to cover some of the things that people might not have thought about, because obviously people always think about nuclear winter, nuclear apocalypse and that kind of thing. But also there's other things, because, again, like we said, um, institutions are really important for the fighting of disease, but they can also be really instrumental in the waging and the stopping of wars. Sure. So, for example, um, I remember listening to a podcast where they were talking about one of the threats that a lot of people don't consider from foreign powers who may not have our best interests at heart right. is the idea of hacking, especially hacking into our infrastructure. Yeah. So hacking into people's power networks, again, that that kind of causes a whole lights go out situation that would kill a lot of people. Yes. You also have things like people using scorched earth tactics, mm-hmm. which 
Um, a really recent 2019 example of this is the Amazon rainforest, which oh, part right. of it, from what I know, uh, some of it may have been natural, but a lot of it was a result of slash and burn agriculture. And that, in turn, was fueled by a lot of anti-indigenous and anti-foreign sentiments. Right. Right. People kind of burning the Amazon rainforest almost out of spite. Um, so that's a result of the conflict that could have worldwide implications because of how much of the forest has been lost yeah that's going to take us centuries to heal if we have that long right and in the meantime it's going to make a major it's going to have major repercussions on the levels of co2 on our oxygen generation and all of that so a lot of factors that could come together to make a really deadly combination for sure like we mentioned in um option a there is that possibility of biological warfare which is not only pestilence, but also, you know, the war in warfare. Yeah, exactly. Not only with diseases that are currently existent, but again, people in certain countries are capable of genetic engineering. Viruses are really easy to mish and mash together. Yeah. Um, and so it is terrifyingly easy to develop something that probably a lot of people have no immunity to. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's a fun thought. Merry Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> I think another big category of war that we have to talk to, talk about yeah. in 2019 is like terrorism. Yes. Especially white supremacist or just nationalistic terrorism. Yes. Obviously, that is a huge issue that our country is facing. Right. Just the rabble rousing of autocratic leaders that emboldens white nationalistic terrorists yeah. to kill people. And to me, that that totally counts as war, right? Yes. An act of terrorism. It's an act of war. Yeah. Which, uh, yeah, it's not great. Yeah. Because, again, these things have far-reaching consequences, even if the original, um, the original impact of a terrorist attack is relatively small compared to the world population. Mm-hmm. But... We live in the age of mass media, and so these things get blown up. They yeah, they, the ripple they effect. Fuel, right? They fuel further conflict. They fuel alienation. Um, in cases where attacks may be carried out by someone who is of a certain ethnic group, then sometimes that ethnic group has to reap the consequences mm-hmm. disproportionately. I think in a lot of cases, you can just look at what happened after, say, like nine eleven was a really, really high-profile example of what can happen when people of one ethnic group carry out a terrorist attack, mm-hmm. and then suddenly everybody thinks that Muslims are all terrorists, which is not true. Of course. Right. And so, basically, yeah, violence breeds further violence. Mm-hmm. And um, that would not be the fastest way to go, but uh, if you let it go for long enough, then sooner or later it'll get most of us. Yeah. And then... Working backwards from that, using the principle of violence breeds violence, Mm -hmm. I think we have to count hate speech as also falling under this category. Yeah. In that hate speech can embolden terrorists, et cetera, et cetera, you know, as we just discussed. And again, the current climate, especially in our country, you know, obviously we can speak to that most easily. And I understand, too, in the UK, anti-Semitism is also on the rise there. Yeah. Just a a lot of strange like racially fueled backsliding that we're going through right now yeah it's like guys we're over this we should be over this yeah i thought racism was over misguided white people (sighs) anyway so yeah so let's kind of segue into talking about we've talked about all the different types of war 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and so let's talk about how bad would it be for the world to end in war? Uh, I feel like the world ending in war, obviously we still fall to tribalism, but it seems that there it would probably be more likely to have more survivors, right? Because, yes. you know, no matter yes. what the kind of attack is, war can only attack, right. you know, it, it can only attack so many people at once, whereas disease spreads itself. Yes. So in that sense, I mean, I guess that's better. More survivors. Yeah. Um, it doesn't have quite the same pernicious uh, psychological torture as disease, I would say. Unless, of course, it is right. biological warfare that is being deployed, in which case that is moot. Yeah, but then, of course, um, you have to consider what if... You know, what if it's war fueled by some kind of bigotry, say that they want to kill yeah. all LGBT people for whatever reason. Right. Then you and I would be targeted. Yeah. You'd have to be concerned for your loved ones. So that kind of psychological toll is not great. Yeah, that's true. It probably would not be as, you know, drawn out. But I feel that, you know, the heightened violence makes it equally as damaging, if not more so. That's very true. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about um, outside of our mm-hmm. human society. So obviously, I think it depends on the level of warfare that we're talking. If we're talking nuclear winter, everything is complete, It totally depends, right? though, because it's not like you nuke the entire planet. You nuke parts of the planet, and those parts are, like, kaput. But outside of that, they're fine. The Earth is fine. Yeah, I guess then we get into the question of how bad would this nuclear... Uh, how bad would the nuclear winter be, mm-hmm. you know? So nuclear winter, nuclear holocaust, then obviously that's going to have a huge effect on whatever uh, ecosystem uh, is is, yeah. is targeted. Um, slightly less bad is wars like um, Vietnam or other, or kind of what's going on in the Amazon right now where it's kind of a scorched earth, destroy the thing that people get sustenance from, um tactics sure so in those cases yes you are wreaking a lot of destruction but again nature is probably going to bounce back i understand what you mean it seems like it's since it targets nature it seems like it should be a worse effect on nature but because it's not literally dumping radioactive material that will stay there for thousands and millions of years the earth will recover better from that tactic right and then um if we're talking Things like targeting infrastructure um, or even possibly biological warfare, then you're dealing with a sort of a lower impact type of conflict, even though it's still pretty high impact. But the effects of those, again, it's probably not going to be that bad. So you can look at, for an example, um, a lot of forested areas in Europe that were destroyed, just completely bombed out during World Mm -hmm. War One and Two, and they kind of bounced back in ecological terms because uh, people vacated them. People left them or everybody mm-hmm. died. And then you just, nature a lot of times is very resilient and it'll come back. So so in terms of this one seems like one that would mostly devastate human society as opposed to the entire freaking planet. Do you have a bright note to, to leave us on before we move on to the next option? Nope. Well, so there has been quite a lot of nuclear disarmament among the global population, even though some of the most uh, volatile members of the globe haven't been participating. That's very true. Um, I guess it's kind of comforting to think that we have the tools for stopping war. Mm -hmm. 
available to us, right? We have super fast lines of communication that can prevent miscommunications Mm -hmm. with tragic consequences, right? Um, We'll have to link you to the story about the time that World War III almost happened because of a miscommunication, some sort of simulator running. And a guy bothered to check at the last minute and was like, oh, I better not actually detonate these nuclear warheads because that was a mistake. Well, the other thing I was going to mention about, you know, the good thing, uh good things we're doing now that prevent war is as far as our whole domestic terrorism, nationalism angle of war. Yes. I feel that it's a positive thing that white nationalism is more and more in the spotlight because, you know, the more open it is, the, the better we can conceive of tactics to, you know, de-radicalize yeah. people. Those of us who survive mm-hmm. it will probably be the ones who are more repulsed by it. Hopefully. Hopefully. Pretty, yeah, that's pretty much. I mean, it's, war is a thing that because its roots are pretty human, mm-hmm. it's humans who decide to pick up weapons and go kill each other. Um, because of that, it is a thing that is human preventable, right? It's... Not this inexorable thing like disease where you might have a chance of fighting it or you might Right, but that's related to our next topic, which is sea famine, which is another of those things that I guess humans can affect it one way or the other, but overall it's pretty inexorable to die of starvation. Well, actually, I find it really interesting because a lot of cases, I found that in a lot of cases, famines are also heavily impacted by human activity. A lot of them, when they truly become famine, are because whatever started there, whatever climatic conditions were there, were exacerbated by humans. And that does make sense because it's hard to have a famine without thinking about, like, human supply chains and human systems of agriculture, you know, things that humans actively cultivate. Right. So... Before we kind of get into dissecting the nature of famine, then let's talk about incidences of famine in our present mm-hmm. day, how likely is sure. it, and so forth. Well, obviously there's climate change yeah. is a thing. So as the person on the podcast who um, theoretically has a degree in environmental sustainability. You um, actually have a degree in that. <laughs> it doesn't mean <laughs> I remember stuff. But uh, on that reassuring note... I can tell you that um, in recent years, we have had increased extremity of natural disaster events, Mm -hmm. including but not limited to hurricanes, which can cause a lot of damage to both buildings and human society, but also to food crops. Right. We have also had increased droughts, which have caused similar ecological damage. We have had a lot of increased floods, and that's only just talking about things that I know have happened in the U.S. Right. We're having a lot of similar effects in other areas of the world. Um, Basically, a lot of things, uh, we're having warmer winters, Mm -hmm. we're having less snowfall. Uh, All of these climatic changes that are wreaking havoc on the food system, which of course depends on predictable weather, um, predictable growing seasons, all that kind of stuff. And so instability is very bad. Yes. And I think it's um, it seems so obvious to say that drought is a kind of famine, but I had never yeah. considered it that way. Because famine to me obviously seems so tied into food, but like you equally need water. You need water more to survive. Yes. And obviously like having clean water available, potable water available right. for drinking is a huge issue in the world right now. Right. 
Yeah. So um, one of the biggest cases right now is the country of Yemen, mm-hmm. which even without the civil war that was going on, Yemen was slated to run out of water um, this year or next year, I believe. Uh, back a couple years ago, that was the prediction that people are going. But of course, Yemen is also in the middle of a civil war. Right. It's We're looking at 18 million or so people who don't have access to clean drinking water. Oh, dear. What water there is, is it's like Mad Max Fury Road. That's mm. basically the situation that we're looking at, where some people have said that the water is weaponized, basically, because it's something that people fight over. Mm-hmm. Um, and what water is available tends to be tainted in some way. So right. there have also been a lot of cholera cases. Uh, some estimates go upwards of 1.2 million. This oh my was gosh. From a number from 2008. So for, sorry, this was a number from t- 2018. Mm-hmm. So the number is probably higher this year. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, so that's going on. But right. then also in Yemen, it's not just the water, right? There's also more traditional food famine. Yeah. Again, because of the disruption of institutions, the civil yeah. war, uh, they're getting cut off from a lot of places where they might have been able to import food, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And then this is something you mentioned during our discussion of vaccinations, but it's something that a lot of people, especially in the West, especially in the U.S., like, oh, that doesn't happen here. That happens over there. But I mean, Flint, Flint, Michigan, like happened and happened for a long time here in the it's U.S. It's happening. Well, Flint, actually, Flint- I did read an article that they do have clean water, but it's just that the trust in institutions was so thoroughly broken during the height of that crisis that even though they do have potable water, most of the citizens obviously don't trust it and still, you know, still need um, relief efforts to provide them with water that they can trust because security is equally as important, right? The mental strain of having to stress about whether you can trust your water is equally important. And not to mention that the public health results, the public health mm-hmm. ramifications of that whole water crisis are still going to be going, they're still going to be felt for years. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, there's all these children who are going to grow, who have been exposed to lead poisoning, not just children, but uh, people of all ages who have been exposed to all of the stuff that was in the Flint water. Yeah. And so that's going to be impacting the pop the local population of flint and if people move then that's it then you know then they'll, they'll be taking a lot of those some of those issues and health problems with them to wherever they go yeah uh not necessarily to spread to other people but just with them yeah like it will it will impact the, their lives for the rest of their lives yeah and and there's not a small number of people in the region that was affected and there's also other regions that were affected for example uh in September, October of this year, if I remember correctly, there was also a short water crisis in Newark, um, which is a, also a very big city. Mm-hmm. Uh, there have also been a lot of reports of water problems going back several years in a lot of First Nations reservations in Canada mm-hmm. sure. that that are not quickly addressed by the government, by the institutions. Mm-hmm. and. In general, that was what I found was that, again, a lot of these famines, right, so either water crises, food crises, a lot of them may have started out as a slight shortage or a, or a minor problem, yeah. but then they're exacerbated because of the slowness of the response of the institution that is supposed to protect these people. Mm-hmm. What do you think of um, utilities, shortages of utilities being famine? Because there's that case in California this October 
of 2019, yeah. where a power company just stopped supplying power to its region for like two yeah. days. I mean, I because to me, that totally counts as modern famine is people being unable to rely on electricity that should be yeah, reliable. People being un- basically people being unable uh, or insecure in something that they have a basic need for right which these days in our modern times is also includes electricity yeah for sure and honestly i mean we're getting we're almost getting to the point where Mm -hmm. wi-fi gets included in that because it's so important to have a line of connection to other people yeah because and then if you think about it like what if you need to be warned of a natural disaster the way most people are warned these days is through wi-fi or at least a cell signal and if you don't have a cell phone and you can't access wi-fi you're being denied that same you know precaution yeah i don't know okay so now that we've gone through all the different ways that people can experience famine yeah exactly um let's talk about how bad it is uh yeah terrible yeah i think i mentioned at the top a death by starvation is agonizing painful humiliating dehumanizing all of that. Um, that's starvation by food, uh, death by thirst, same thing. Yeah, equally terrible, but faster. Yeah, death without by by lack of communication or lack of electricity is again different degrees, different speeds. But uh, still, I think the main thing to take away from famine is the fact that it's deeply dehumanizing. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, because yeah, as we kind of settled on. Famine is the deprivation of human resources, things that we've all agreed that humans need to live a good, fulfilling life. And it's the deprivation of them. And almost always, as you pointed out, through a lack of response or a weakness in a system that people should be able to rely on, an institution that people should be able to rely on. Depressing. Yeah. So obviously it's a terrible way to go. But how does that impact, you know, non-human earth inhabitants um so again this is kind of an interesting example because in a lot of the cases that Mm -hmm. i was reading right a lot of times famine is preceded by environmental degradation that makes sense right normally even with electricity or wi-fi normally there's some sort of normally something has taken out the system or there have been there's been a minor issue right a lot of times in the past a lot of major famines started because of crop failures or livestock diseases, mm-hmm. and a lot of times those, in turn, were fueled by maybe an overuse of land, population being um, larger than the land could support, uh, species extinctions, and again, animal and plant diseases. So normally, before famine hits human society, it has already hit the environment. It has already had impacts, and a lot of times big impacts, on non-human, not non-human society. Famine is often caused by pestilence or war. Exactly. Right? Right. And then... Then humans take the problem and humans a lot of times will make it worse. They also make it better sometimes, but normally when they make it better, then we don't call it a famine. We call it good news. So, yeah. Well, let's talk about some good news. In what ways do we fight famine? Yeah. All of the incredible innovation on cheap, portable water filters is amazing, especially coming from Africa. African scientists are really killing the game. Yeah, we'll definitely definitely link a couple Mm -hmm. of articles that... If you want to learn more about that in our Absolutely. show notes. Yeah. Innovation, I think, is a big way to fight famine because mm-hmm. it is, and I think a good thing is that famine has a longer time frame, right? So unlike disease, which can happen really fast, 
Um, unlike mm-hmm. war, which can also happen really fast or can just be very, very violent. Yeah. Famine, a lot of times, again, it doesn't normally target everyone. Normally there are survivors. And normally because, I think mm-hmm. because the experience of famine is so bad, people tend, people try to learn from it, right? There's always yeah. people, even in times of plenty, at least in recent years, there are normally a few, at least a few scientists out there working on ways to develop better food crops, ways to ways to develop better water infrastructure, ways to tighten up the food system, um, ways to ways to develop better power and get people more coverage with their cell phones and stuff like that. I think even developments in food safety, not food safety, but like food allergy, you know, making, say, gluten-free versions yeah. of something or non, that kind of thing, because I think that counts as famine too. If you yeah. can't eat the food, it's the same yeah, thing, one right? Of our, one of our friends was a vegan and she was gluten sensitive and she was when she at the school where she was at she was unable to eat anything because they didn't have vegetarian options so yeah so she yeah. she lost like an obscene number of pounds and it was it was really terrible to see yeah so i mean developments in that area too i think definitely steps steps in the right direction against famine right so it's kind of this thing where again famine i get starvation and drought and all of those stuff, again, there's a lot of nature stuff that we can't control, but fun- famine fundamentally, from what I can see, the, the really bad ones are normally have to do with humans. And so therefore, it is something that we can help to mitigate. So yeah, I've been convinced from my position at the beginning <laughs> of the topic. Okay, so that's the third horseman. Yep. So finally, the final horseman is death. So we went back and forth with this topic a little bit because aren't all those other things Mm -hmm. death isn't the apocalypse just death like what does death have to bring to the table the problem with yeah pestilence war and famine is that they cause death right right so yeah so what what did we land on sophie as far as what's different so we thought that something new or something different would be to talk about um the death that follows in the wake of famine and war and pestilence, which is the final blow kind of deal. The hand of God, mm-hmm. so to speak. Basically, we're, we want to talk about mass extinction events. Right. And not in like the, not in the historical sense, as in we're in a mass extinction event now where a lot of species are going extinct. No, like a meteor striking the earth, you know? Yes. That that like, like one big event that just kills everybody. Well, and also climate change, because we can't talk about mass extinction. And also climate change. It's so apocalyptic. It's so apocalyptic. Okay, so let's start with the, shall we start with the meteors or shall we start with the climate change? Let's start with climate change, because she's the big old elephant in the room. We keep, we kept bringing her up in her previous answer choices, but she, she deserves her own discussion. We have to, we have to at least make an effort to look climate change in the eye, even though I don't think either of us is up to the task. We'll try it. So climate change. Obviously, it is a slower process, but... You know, we we hear all these dire predictions about what will happen if we don't limit Earth's warming to such and such degree Celsius. Right. So just to, you know, go over a couple of those dire events. We are speeding uh, to the cliff's edge at a speed that nobody wants. Right. And some people are like, what are you talking about? We're just cruising. So, so among other things, climate change is destabilizing the water supply, as we discussed in famine. Right, yeah. Droughts and floods are huge issues, and they are becoming more extreme and less predictable because of climate change. Yeah, and they're happening more often. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's fun for everybody involved. 
climate change also, this is a really commonly discussed effect, is it leads to sea level rise. Um, and again, warm water related severe weather like hurricanes and tropical mm-hmm. storms and typhoons. So uh, I don't know if you guys know this, but um, a lot of the world's population lives in coastal cities because mm-hmm. water is life. Yeah, that's just the way that humans developed and developed settlements. Right. So a lot of people live near water because we kind of need water to survive. We sure do. And because of that, a lot of sea level rise plus warm water, severe weather has the potential to impact like gazillions of lives. And the BBC, actually, this article from the BBC was estimating that the flood damage, um, and I'm assuming that probably similar levels of loss of life could increase by two or three orders of magnitude in the near future. Ooh, yeah. So that's great. We love that. Good stuff. Yep. And then, of course, there is that idea of a like an actual historical mass extinction. We're obviously going through one, but in particular, the oceans, because of pollution in the ocean, the oceans are acidifying and becoming polluted, which is causing a lot of extinction among, you know, oceanic life, which is terrible for economies or countries or settlements or whatever that rely on the ocean as a food source. Right. And also because it never rains, but it pours. Yeah. Pun intended. Some of the marine organisms Mm -hmm. that they're estimating are going to be most heavily impacted are these organisms called phytoplankton, right? And other other organisms that are marine-based, very delicate, and they produce oxygen, which, of course, is something that we need to survive. So if those guys go, we're screwed because we depend on oxygen. All oxygen-dependent life forms are screwed royally. You know, we were talking earlier about the burning of the Amazon rainforest. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, the Amazon does produce a lot of oxygen, I guess, like for a land forest. But the vast majority of the Earth's oxygen comes from the ocean and the organisms in the ocean that are being very terribly impacted by the degradation of our oceans due to human waste. Yep. Woo! So that's great. But let's go classic now and just hit our last possibility of a fun, <laughs> hit. you know, a, a fun wipeout, total knockout of an event, which is a meteor. Honestly, I think this is the best possible outcome. Hold up. that 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 We're getting ahead of ourselves. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry. So meteors. So you're, I know you're probably thinking, eh, what are the chances? Yeah, shush. Because, um... <laughs> Incidents, basically, meteor incidents are not as uncommon as a lot of people think. So there have been a lot of meteor impacts or meteorites is what they're called when they make impacts to Earth. Right. But there have been a lot of meteor incidents uh, as recently as 2013. Oh, right. If you guys aren't too young, I I don't know if you remember, but a lot of videos went around that year. A bunch of Russian dash cams showing glass exploding because a meteorite impacted above Chelyabinsk in Russia. Yeah, a lot of breaking windows, a lot of damaged buildings, Mm -hmm. and some of the estimates go as far as 1,200 to 1,500 Mm -hmm. people injured. And another thing that I was very interested to learn, um, and also terrified, (laughs) is that exploding asteroids, Mm -hmm. either ones that make an impact or ones that don't and just explode in the atmosphere, they can have the force of a nuclear explosion or atom bomb. 
And the, re- the reason that we know this is because the impacts of these explosions often get picked up by the sensors that are used by the Nuclear Test Ban Treaty Organization oh my gosh. to detect nuclear detonations. So those guys' sensors, they monitor all over the world. They monitor sensors so that they can know, you know, the next time that Kim Jong-un is taking a power trip. Right. But they have reported that uh, since 2000, they've picked up over 26 atom bomb scale asteroid impacts to Earth's atmosphere. Now, I know what you guys are thinking. Just because it has the strength of the blast of a nuclear bomb does not mean it has the terrible impact because so much of the negativity or so much of the terrible outcomes of nuclear bombs are from the radiation. However, let us discuss what the hypothetical impacts of a giant meteor hitting the Earth, you know, like the dinosaur one. Yeah. What that would possibly be now in our times. These are from Tulane University. Yeah. So uh, scientists hypothesize that a meteor like that would cause large clouds of dust from the impact uh, if it hit on land or steam, if it hit in the ocean, that would exacerbate the greenhouse effect that we are already laboring under and block solar radiation leading to a nuclear winter-like effect. So you thought you were safe, but you're not. Nope. And obviously, a lack of solar radiation would immediately kill organic life on Earth because all of us get our energy from the sun through the food chain. Yep. Bye-bye. So that's not great. So that's the huge long-term effect. Like, we're all dead. Yeah. But even in the short term, there's going to be massive shock waves, earthquakes, and tsunamis, which will be devastating, obviously. Right. And also, radiation... Although it is not nuclear radiation, we're still going to be getting radiation and also wildfires. Right. Because meteors burn in the atmosphere before they hit the surface. So that fire is going to spread. Yeah. So it's real fun. Very fun. Yeah. And um, again, maybe you're thinking, oh, you know, it's kind of like with nuclear bombs. They can only strike a certain area of the Earth's surface. They can't hit everything. Um, so then now we're going to talk about the, the big historical dinosaur one that um, a lot of people reference when they talk about meteor strikes. So this is basically the big event that marks the boundary between the Cretaceous period and the Tertiary period in prehistory. Mm-hmm. Um, so mass extinction, this is a mass extinction event that's reflected in the geological record all over the world, right? So right. obviously it had a really, really big global impact which you know we know that it only hit in the yucatan peninsula yeah and and yet a global impact yeah basically um scientists estimate that it caused the extinction of over 50 percent of all species that were living at the time so wow yeah casual that's fine it's fine and it obviously took out the dominant species at the time which were you know, the dinosaurs. Yeah. So we'd, we'd be on the chopping block, man. Yeah, I hate to tell you guys, man, but we are we are kind of the dominant species at this point. So uh, we are uh, bad, 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 yeah. bad, bad. We're on the chopping block for this, man. Yeah. So, OK, so how bad? Um, well, so again, if you're if you're at the impact site of this meteor fast because you'll just you'll just die in the shockwave. Just you'll be good. Zap. It's fine. You're yes. Fine. Good job. But everywhere else in the world you're going to have similar effects to accelerated climate change, which is our other big, you know, event that we talked about. Mm-hmm. And that will be very slow. Yeah. It'll be trickle down and eventually all of the food will stop growing yeah. and diseases will spread and there will be war for resources and it'll just uh, rustle up all the other horsemen. Yeah, basically, basically um, Mad Max Fury Road. Uh, yep. It, it's it's kind of like a parabola where it's gradual at first and then it just... Mm-hmm. Uh, things happen real fast. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, so um, humans are screwed yeah. if this happens. What about outside of human society? Oh, I think still absolutely screwed. Yep. 50% of all life on Earth died in the dinosaur extinction event. Not half of all animals, half of all life on Earth. Yep. So so it's not it's not good. Yeah, no, prognosis is bad. Uh, do we have any good news about this particular bullet, this particular answer choice? Um, okay, so we have a lot of the youths and gen- in general, a lot less climate denial these days. Yeah. Still very slow to be taking decisive action, but there is a huge push for it. You know, we have um, activists, young activists like Greta Thunberg, but also activists who have been at it for a long time. Yeah. We have politicians in the U.S. like... Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. We have a lot of people vying for the um, American presidency who have strong platforms about eco-justice. Yeah. So all that's good news. As far as a meteor, though, no. We have no We have no recourse. Yeah. Theoretically, uh, NASA has this program that you can look up and we'll link you. Um, but it's this program where they, where they monitor and watch a lot of uh, near-Earth objects, a lot of things that kind of mm-hmm. come and they're like, this might be bad. Um, so... We have the technology to watch those uh, objects, which is more than the dinosaurs had, admittedly. But sadly, I don't... Do we have technology that would, you know, prevent it? I don't believe so. So maybe we'll have enough time to get into fallout shelters if we have them. But other than that... Yeah, other than that, bad, 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 bad. Not good. Not good. (laughs) Okay, so on that uplifting note, shall we move to our verdict? Let's do it. So Sophie, in your opinion... Who is the worst horseman of the apocalypse? Oof. I would have to go with, I'm going to go with C, famine, Mm -hmm. um, because it is a thing that theoretically humans should be able to fight or mitigate, but God, when it happens, it's so bad. It's so dehumanizing, I think, is the thing that really got to me. I think that you could argue things like um, Handmaid's Tale are equally about famine. Yeah. You know? Yeah. A famine of... You know, uh, women of reproducing age. Right. And we see exactly what happens. It's bad. (sighs) It's bad. Okay, Lindsay, what about you? I actually agree with you. I also think famine because for the same reason that just because it's so dehumanizing, I think that there's truly no quicker way to, you know, draw lines between groups and bring out terrible ugliness and othering than to scarcify a resource that people have come to rely on. You know, like if we if we had a food shortage, you would see very quickly that there would be rich people who think that they, you know, deserve more than poor people. And why are we going to be feeding people who are disabled if, you know, it's just a waste of resources and boom, all kinds of ugly eugenic stuff will come out instantly. Right. And so famine is just it's again, it just reduces us to our worst selves because all you can think about is that bottom level of, of the hierarchy of needs. It's just, mm-hmm. you just need food and, and that can d- cause you to do some terrible things. Absolutely. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So now that we've decided that, it's time for our meme of the week. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so in order to maybe kind of leave us on our lighter note-ish, uh, given that this is you know, it is the holiday season. It's about to be the new year. So now that we've talked about all the ways that things can go terribly, terribly wrong, let's instead look yeah. at some positives and ask each other, Sophie, what kind of New Year's resolutions are you going to try to keep next year in the event that there is no apocalypse? Um, I think, I don't know. I got to like pull my brain out of the like apocalypse vortex. Uh, for me, I think I think I need to definitely... Vote for politicians who have strong eco-justice policies. 
and be be active in bothering my representatives in uh, yes. voting for those things. Yes, because we have a representative government. Allegedly. I was going to say democracy, but that's not technically that true. It's a representative government. Yes. Um, which is theoretically representative, so we should make them represent us harder. Yeah. Uh, and for all of you Americans out there, I hope this is also on your New Year's resolution list, and I will put it on mine as well. Yeah, and register to vote if you haven't. Yeah. Uh, by the time that uh, this episode comes out, it will be too late for you to register. Well, the November election of 2019 will be over, but it will you will still have plenty of time to go do the thing for 2020, which is uh, important. Uh, anything, any resolutions, Lindsay? Um, this makes me want to, like, look up some basic survival stuff, like, like I'm Brian from Gary Paulson's Hatchet, where I'm like, (laughs) in the event something happened, I think it'd be very nice to be able to, you know, fend for myself instead of having to, like, fight an old granny at the Walmart, you know? (laughs) Yeah, skin a deer, or... Uh, pluck a chicken or something. Yeah. Set up a rain catcher. Yeah, I've seen diagrams, but I've never tried it. So maybe that's, maybe that will be my thing is just to, you know, be like every tin hatter. Yeah. And then on a more serious note, I think we could resolve to fight hate, you know, when we see it, especially on social media, in ways that de-escalate, right? Yeah. In order to fight nationalism and othering. Yeah. Uh, that's a hard one, but uh, it, it sure is. Uh, the if if we do it, then I think the payoff will be worth it. Yeah. So, all right. So I think does that. I feel like that about wraps us up for today. And if you want to learn more about this podcast, please go visit our Tumblr at pixiepodcast.tumblr.com. Please also go and vote for your favorite or least favorite of the Horsemen of the Apocalypse on our. Twitter, which is also Pixie Podcast. And if you really enjoyed this episode and the past season and want to support us going into hopefully an equally exciting new season, then please check out our Patreon, which is also Pixie Podcast. So as always, this episode was written by us, Sophie Lee and Lindsay Jones. Our audio editing was by Elisha Bonnet, and our intro and outro music are by David Hillowitz. So, this is the last episode of season one of When in Doubt Pixie, the last episode of our three-episode finale extravaganza. Yeah, we made it, guys. And hopefully you made it with us, too. Hopefully you're still here. We hope that you have enjoyed this past season, and we hope that we'll see you again in January for season two. Yeah. Have a happy holiday, and have a happy new year. We will see you in the future. Bye. Bye.